Today we're going to return to our on-again, off-again study of the Old Testament book of Daniel. It's an ancient book, but as we're seeing, it has an awful lot to say to us about keeping our faith intact when we're immersed in a corrupt culture. Now, given summer schedules, my August study sabbatical and so on, we may not finish Daniel till late summer, even early fall, but we will finish our study because Daniel has so much to say to us, not only about keeping faith, but about the character of God. And the latter will be our focus today. Before I begin, I want to take an impromptu poll, and I want you to respond by raising your hand. How many of you have heard the expression, weighed in the balance and found wanting? How many have heard that expression? All right, a good many of you. How many have heard the expression, your days are numbered? <laughs> yeah, almost everybody. Parents like to use that one sometimes, don't they? How many have heard the phrase, the writing's on the wall? Okay. How many of you know that all three of those phrases had their origin in the fifth, chap fifth chapter of the book of Daniel? Probably not nearly as many. Okay, you shouldn't lie in church, so don't put that <laughs> hand up. All three of those expressions speak to our focus today. The refusal of God's love and the inevitable tragic consequences of refusing God's love. To set the stage for our study, I want to read something that Daniel said to King Belshazzar of Babylon. He had just reminded Belshazzar of everything God did for his ancestor Nebuchadnezzar and how God brought him to faith and to his senses. And then in verses 22 and 23, Daniel said, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. I've entitled my teaching today, You Knew, But You Never. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, by your Spirit, enable me to teach your truth, and by your Spirit, enable each of us to understand it and apply it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And as we listen for God's voice together today, may the Lord be with you. Most of you know that life can shift suddenly from joyous to tragic can happen in a matter of seconds. We did four funerals this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. In every case, the person who died, died unexpectedly, suddenly, without warning. So we were reminded four times that life can shift from joy to tragedy in the matter of a missed heartbeat. And what's true of life is also true of God's word. It can shift its focus from joy to tragedy in the matter of one sentence. And we'll see that today as we look at chapter 5 of Daniel. Because chapter 4 closed with the testimony of a once arrogant ruler who had come to faith because of God's stubborn grace. But chapter 5 opens with the tale of a stubbornly arrogant ruler who chose to reject God and mock God. So chapter 4 highlights God's patient grace. Chapter 5 highlights 
God's swift, unavoidable judgment. Now, the topic of God's judgment is something that our culture has little stomach for. Our culture has been infatuated with moral relativism for many, many decades. The idea of absolute truth is just beyond most people's understanding. So the thought of God judging is offensive to many people. To their way of thinking, a God who judges could never be a God of love, could never be a God of grace. That's why in our culture, you often hear people saying things like this, a loving God would never. And what usually completes the sentence is some expression of God's judgment. A loving God would never exclude this person. A loving God would never condemn that action. A loving God would never judge that person. But that kind of thinking is in stark contradiction to God's word. Scripture makes it clear that God's grace and God's judgment are not opposites. They are two different expressions of his love. That's why any teaching that rejects the notion of judgment as somehow being unworthy of God is a teaching that is unworthy of your confidence and your acceptance, even if the person teaching that says they're doing so because of love. A loving God will be a judging God, and here's why. A loving God won't allow the effects of sin to defile his creation forever. He will say, enough, enough damage, enough tragedy, enough injustice, enough violence, enough hatred, enough murder, enough poverty. A loving God will bring the nonsense to an end. Now, when we get into the next portion of the book of Daniel, we'll see Daniel revealed how that will play out on a global scale on what God's going to do in the entire world in the days ahead. But chapter 5 shows us how that plays out on an individual and a national scale. It recounts how it played out in the case of Nebuchadnezzar's descendant, Belshazzar. For all of his many faults, the Babylonian emperor Nebuchadnezzar was a kingdom builder. His descendant, Belshazzar, was not. He inherited the fruits of Nebuchadnezzar's hard work, but he didn't inherit his drive, his ambition, his wisdom, or his eventual humility and faith. And that likely explains why Nebuchadnezzar didn't make Belshazzar king in his place. He appointed somebody else to be the number one ruler, and he made his family member, Belshazzar, number two in command. One day, Belshazzar hosted a massive party in the palace. It was probably a display of false bravado because at the time he hosted the party, the armies of the Medes and the Persians had surrounded the city of Babylon and were about to attack it. Well, at this party, the alcohol flowed freely. It was open bar all night. And we all know that alcohol consumption has a way of removing restraint and revealing what's actually in a person's heart. And it revealed Belshazzar's heart, and his heart was ugly. His ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar, after he had conquered Israel and Jerusalem, 
still showed respect for the sacred vessels that had been in the Jerusalem temple. He brought them back to Babylon, but he housed them in a sacred storage facility, and he never touched them, and he never used them. He treated them with respect. But Belshazzar, he treated them with intentional, obvious contempt. I suspect he was embarrassed that he had only been appointed as number two in command rather than number one. And I suspect he was really resentful of Daniel and his three friends because they were Hebrew exiles and Nebuchadnezzar had made them some of the highest rulers in the nation. He was family and he only got the number two post. And you know as well as I do, family sometimes feels entitled. And you know as well as I do, when entitled people don't get what they feel they're entitled to, they get really vindictive. So what did Belshazzar do? He said, go get those sacred vessels and bring them. We're going to use them in my party. Now to the people of Israel, those objects symbolize God's presence, God's holiness. When the Babylonians seized them and captured them, to the Babylonians... That meant their pagan gods were superior to the God of Israel. And all of that was a source of great national embarrassment to the Israeli people. But the fact that the vessels were still intact, stored away, and had been never used in a pagan ritual, that gave the people of Israel hope. Hope that one day their nation would be restored and their temple would be restored. A false prophet by the name of Hananiah encouraged them to believe that way. He said, Jerusalem will be restored in two years. And Hananiah was dead in two months because he was a false prophet. In contradiction, the true prophet Jeremiah said, maybe someday, but it's got to be a long time coming. And it's a reminder that God's prophets don't tell people what they want to hear. God's prophets tell people what they need to hear. And let me remind you, there are a lot of false prophets in media ministries today. And they are very fortunate that false prophets are no longer stoned to death. Or they would be off the air fairly quickly. Well, Belshazzar used those sacred Hebrew vessels to celebrate his power. But worse than that, as his guests drank from them, he had them pour out alcoholic offerings to the pagan gods of Babylon. And it was a mean-spirited show of disrespect for the Hebrew exiles and their impotent God. He was dissing them majorly. And it was another reminder that human pride isn't content to simply ignore God. It feels the need to mock God and to mock God's people. And we're seeing that on the increase in our nation. Now Belshazzar's actions were more than hateful and resentful and disrespectful. They constituted blasphemy. Now that's an old word that you don't hear much, especially in our culture. Because people raised in moral relativism find the idea of blasphemy against God unthinkable. Because if you allow for the existence of blasphemy, you're basically allowing for the existence of God. 
But that doesn't change the reality that there's a lot of blasphemy going on. What's blasphemy? Blasphemy is the practice of mocking God and his truth or, or misusing it. Now, the first, mocking God, is pretty obvious. The scoffing, the accusations of atheism and skepticism, the inappropriate use of God's name. It's easy to detect that. But that second kind of blasphemy, the misuse of God and his truth, that's far more subtle, but equally blasphemous, and it's far more prevalent. When people use things that belong to God and use God's name, for ungodly purposes, that's blasphemy. Now, there are many examples of it in our nation's history. And probably the most pronounced example is the fact that God's word was used to endorse and undergird slavery for many, many decades. A hideous evil, abhorrent in the sight of God, and people used the Bible to undergird gird it and validate it. That was blasphemy. And that's obvious now, but what's less obvious is the fact that we still have the tendency to do that. God's name, God's truth is used to undergird things like nationalism, militarism, individualism, materialism, and partisan politics. We often hear the suggestion that God is on this side, that God is the tribal war deity of the United States, that God cares about America more than other places. It's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. The use of God's word to endorse something contrary to God's word is a misuse of God's word. It's blasphemy. So be very, very careful, especially in the political arena. You know, when people say, well, if you're a Christian, you'll vote. Oh, don't even finish that sentence. <laughs> because let's face it, we're going to have two horribly corrupt choices. <laughs> That's what you get in a fallen world. God said, you want earthly kings? I'll give you earthly kings. They'll tax you. They'll send your sons to war. And they've been taxing and sending sons to war ever since. Let's get back to Belshazzar. He's, he's getting impatient. How could God tolerate what Belshazzar did? Well, God didn't tolerate it. God's on record. He will not be mocked. So it should come as no surprise. The next word in the text is the word suddenly. Things were about to change, and they were going to change quickly. But I want you to remember God's judgment is rarely sudden. It only looks sudden to us because we ignore his patience. God doesn't have a short fuse. God doesn't get bent out of shape overnight. God is incredibly patient. But when we ignore his patience and he finally judges us, then we say, whoa, where'd that come from? God had tolerated the evils of Babylon for a long time, but it came time to pay the piper. So as the king Belshazzar watched in horror, a human finger appeared and began to write on the wall of the palace. That's why we get that term, the handwriting on the wall. So he called for some of his magicians and wise men, the same dudes who had earlier failed Nebuchadnezzar. 
because those who refuse to turn to God will return to imposters. See, God created us to trust him. If we refuse to trust him, we will trust someone or something else. And we'll keep going back to that someone or something else, no matter the fact that it never delivers the goods. We'll keep going back to the same dry well. Because spiritual imposters don't improve with time, the so-called experts weren't able to help the king at all. Well, the queen walked in. We don't know if it was his wife or his grandmother, but she walked in and said, what's going on? They told her, and she said, well, call for Daniel. <laughs> he helped Nebuchadnezzar. He can help you. So Belshazzar called for Daniel. Now, think of this. This arrogant fool is now reduced to seeking the only hope available from one of those Hebrew exiles that he hated and that he was disrespecting whose God he was mocking. And let me, let me just say to you, if God ever nudges you to be a blessing to somebody who's been mocking God, be a blessing to them. Because that's what we should always want to see happen. So Daniel appears and he says, Daniel, if you can interpret this handwriting, I'll make you number three in power. Well, Daniel was in his 80s. Daniel had been serving in a high position for over 50 years. He had been serving God all his life. He didn't want what the king was offering. So he passed on that nonsense. And then he spoke to Belshazzar. Now, if you've been with us in our study, you know that every time Daniel spoke to Nebuchadnezzar, he was very respectful, very gracious. Because he knew in his heart God was bringing Nebuchadnezzar toward faith. And Daniel wanted to encourage him. So he always said things like, O king, live forever. And he was always patient. Now he's talking to Belshazzar. No grace, no patience, just blunt truth. Two by four to the side of the head. Because <laughs> he said, all that stuff that God did for your ancestor, you knew all that. But you never humbled yourself. Instead, you exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. See, Belshazzar knew the truth, but it didn't make any difference in his life. He sinned against God's light, against knowledge. And that's the worst kind of sin, because when you sin against a knowledge of God's truth, it hardens your heart. That's a biblical term. It means your soul begins to build callous tissue around it till you get so calloused and so hardened that even though God is inviting you, you can no longer respond. And hardness of heart can effectively settle your eternal destiny long before you die. See, we deceive ourselves when we say, well, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do, and then when I know the end is coming, then maybe I'll do the God thing. Well, first of all, you don't know when the end is coming. You may not survive this service. But secondly, the idea that you can harden yourself against God, and then at 11.59 of your life, flick a switch and suddenly be open to God, Ain't going to happen. 
That probably explains why in all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, there's only one example of somebody coming to God in the last hours of their life. One. One. The thief on the cross. God gave us one example so that nobody would ever despair, but he only gave us one so that we wouldn't presume when I'm good and ready. Because the reality is if you harden your heart, you'll never be ready. And it's not that God takes the invitation off the table, it's that you'll never respond to it. Well, Belshazzar did something the human race has been doing since history's earliest chapters. Daniel said, you have set yourself against God. What does that mean? We set ourselves against God when we regard God's word as false and our own lies as truth. Now, by that definition, Western culture has set itself against God. American culture has set itself against God. It mocks God's truth, the scriptures, as false, and it elevates its own lies as truth. And it's on the increase, which shouldn't surprise us. As Daniel will reveal later, the closer we get to the second coming of Jesus, there'll be a great falling away. People will not endure biblical truth, and they'll look for teachers and guides who will tell them what they want to hear. And we're there, which is why I say if God doesn't come in my lifetime, he will miss a good opportunity. Now, when God decides to act, he doesn't procrastinate. Daniel interpreted the words. They said, you've been found wanting, your days are numbered, tonight you lose the kingdom. And that night, Belshazzar was executed, and the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon, and the empire was no more. That night. Belshazzar knew what God had done for his ancestor Nebuchadnezzar. He had witnessed God's amazing grace, but he didn't learn from the experience. Instead, he exalted himself over God and discovered God is not mocked. If we refuse his grace, we will experience his judgment. And it's not because God's vindictive. God's not vindictive. I mean, really, why would the eternal, infinite God need to get even with any of us? Wow, a great victory there. Wow, God really showed us how big he is. He got even with little old me. God's not vindictive. God judges because he's good. Because remember, if he were to let human sin and the tragedy of human sin ruin his creation forever, that would be the most unloving thing he could do, especially given the fact he has the power to put it to an end. You know, in our culture, virtue signaling has become a big thing with the advent of social media. Uh, people, rather than actually doing things to change the world, just post things on social media, show up for a brief demonstration, throw their voice into the fray to signal how tolerant and how virtuous and, and how enlightened they are. And, and they really, it's really fashionable these days to talk about justice and to show how enlightened you are by being outraged by injustice. Well, now, we should be enraged, outraged by injustice. But here's the irony. 
People who signal their virtue by being outraged and calling for justice consider it an outrage when a holy, perfect God is outraged and wants to do justice. If I want to call something unjust and do something about it, I'm a noble person. But if God, who knows a lot more than me, wants to call something sin and do something about it, well, that's a God I can never follow. That's because you're already following a God and he looks like you. The God you're following is the face you see in the mirror. You have made God in your image. He didn't ask you to do that. Which says to me, the issue isn't judgment. The issue is who's doing it. Let's be honest. We judge all the time. We look at other human beings and say, that's not, that's not right. That, somebody should shut him up. He shouldn't be allowed to write. We judge all the time. But when an all-knowing God wants to judge, oh, my. Oh, that's scandalous. I, I, how could anybody follow him? I am. At least I'm giving it my best try. So let's go back to those statements that begin, a loving God would never. And let me suggest, here's how they should end. A loving God would never allow sin to destroy his creation or the human race. He would never allow that. He would intervene. Belshazzar didn't face God's judgment because God wanted that. He faced God's judgment because he wanted that. See, the only forgiveness available in the universe is forgiveness from God. If you reject God's forgiveness, you won't find forgiveness anywhere else. It's like people get all bent out of shape over the concept of hell. Hell is just the outside of heaven. That's how Revelation refers to it. For the people who don't want to be on the inside. God says, if you don't want to be around me for eternity, I'm not going to force myself on you. I'm not a stalker. I'll give you a place where you don't have to deal with me. You don't want me present in your life? I'll give you a place where I'll be absent. And we get, oh, God, how could a loving God do that? Why would anybody with two brain cells working want that? That's why C.S. Lewis said, in the end, there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. You don't want me? I don't force myself on people. Here's a place where you don't have to deal with me. So it wasn't God's preference, it was Belshazzar's choice. He knew God had shown grace to Nebuchadnezzar. He knew God showed his sovereignty through the dreams and interpretations of Daniel. He knew about God's power when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked out of the fiery furnace and their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. 
He knew God's existence. He knew God's grace. He knew God's patience. He knew God's truth. He knew God's sovereignty. He knew God's power, but he never, but he never, he never humbled himself. If you refuse God's grace, there's nothing left but God's judgment. Why do we lay the blame for that with God? Because if God said, well, you can do anything and destroy as many lives as you want and I'll never stop you, then we'd complain, well, how could a loving God not intervene? <coughs> Let me remind you, when the final judgment comes, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Because you, you can hear scripture all your life, and if you don't know Jesus, he'll say, I don't know you. I don't know you. He even said, in, in that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, we didn't. He say, but I didn't know you. It is who you know. If you know Jesus, you're getting in. If you don't know Jesus, go outside. But that's not God's choice. That's yours. Because God's on record. He's not willing that anybody should miss his eternal kingdom. But if that's our choice, he'll honor it. Okay. I'm stressing this because I get so tired of our good God suffering from character assassination in this sick, 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 sick culture. Okay. If you're a follower of God, don't be embarrassed by following God. People may mock you, call you a hater, call you a bigot, call you a phobic, yada, yada, yada. Get some new material. Okay. I mean, come on. Why is it that if we disagree on a moral issue, I'm a hater and you're enlightened? Huh? No, we disagree. We'll find out in the end who was right. We won't have to go eternity wondering. We'll find out. Okay. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Reality is if I'm wrong, I've lost nothing. If you're wrong, you've lost everything. So as we close, that begs the question, what have you done with what you know? What have you done with what you know about God's grace? Have you responded? If not, the Bible says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. So let's take a moment and let's pray. If you're already a follower of Jesus, you pray for somebody in the room who may not yet be a follower of Jesus. And if that describes you, but God's been pursuing you, and today you would like to be a follower of Jesus, simply in the quiet of your heart where he knows your every thought, confess that you need his forgiveness and his salvation. Confess your belief in his resurrection. Confess him as your Lord. And ask him to save you. Commit yourself to following him. And thank him for hearing your prayer. Because God's on record, anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No exceptions. No exceptions. Father, I want to pray for anybody in the room today who crossed over from life or from death into life.
from darkness into light. And I pray that your spirit would quickly testify to them what you've done for them. And I pray, Father, that they would get into a, a church family where they'll be encouraged and taught. But I pray that they would share the good news of Jesus with their family and friends and be contagious carriers of your gospel. Lord, you are good all the time. All the time you are good. In your judgment, you are good. We're the ones that have the problem. So, Lord, as believers, I pray we would not be embarrassed, would not be intimidated by the truth of your judgment, but that it would be an incentive for us to share the good news of the gospel. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.